Hello, it's David Shirley from Irish Funds. Today we are bringing you one of the highlights from the Irish Funds Annual Conference 2022 that we held in Dublin on the 31st of May. We were delighted to welcome Jim Barry, who is Chief Investment Officer of BlackRock Alternatives Investors, give a keynote at the conference entitled Extraordinary Times, Where Do We Go From Here? Jim outlines how we are at an inflection point in the global macroeconomic environment and how the context for managing capital and assets is now impacted by multiple and significant challenges, which include the pandemic, rising inflation, the war in Ukraine, the fall off in Chinese growth and the real effects and costs of climate change. I'm sure you will find his insights very interesting and we will have further content shortly from the annual conference 2022. Great pleasure to be here. Um, I, Maria actually has some photographs and she can get me to do pretty much anything on the back of that. Um, but delighted to be here with you today. So um, I'm going to put our industry in context um, uh, with some observations about the macro context as we head into the second half of 2022 and beyond. And before I get to where do we go from here, I think it's worth reflecting um, how good we've had it over the last 30, 40 years. Um, the expression, the great moderation, has been used to describe the period from the early 80s to about now. So what's that period? So that period was dominated by a number of major factors. The first was the entry of China into the global economy in the early 80s. Brought this massive potential, economic potential, um, which not just had cheap labor, but also productive labor and a prodigious user of capital, um, which was a massive influence and a growth infusion on a consistent basis over the last 35 years to the global economy. Growth rates of 8, 10% unknown for your economy of that size um, uh, for that length of time. Secondly, um, we had demographics. We had young population all over the world, highly educated, uh, with big investment education flowing through into the global economy. We also had globalization, whether it was GATT, its successor WTO, NAFTA, the EU itself. But just at the point of time China enters, and it in turn entered the WTO in 2001, you had a creation of a rules-based system that enabled the flows of goods, capital, and even some services. Um, we also had technology. And we've just had such advancement in technology over the last 30 years, massive productivity gains on the back of it, massively deflationary and stabilizing in that context. And then finally, we've had pretty much substantial geopolitical stability with certainly from the end of the 80s into the 90s, a kind of a unipolar world centered around the United States and its power and influence. You put that all together, and that period from the early 80s to about now has had about half, if you take the US as a measure, had half the GDP volatility of the period between the Second World War and the early 80s. It had half the inflation volatility of that period. And that allowed central banks really become the adjudicator of growth 
and be able to intervene without much consequence um, any time we had demand shocks. And it's predominantly demand shocks we had um, at various junctures. So this is, you know, in macroeconomic terms, has been about as benign as it could have been. And I think if we hadn't had the pandemic, I think we'd still be kind of talking about that, but beginning to seeing a fraying around the edges and some of those major factors. And I'll come back to that at the end. But of course, we had pandemic. Now, the, it, it does fall into, you couldn't make this stuff up, okay? We've lived it for over two years now, uh, but just take a step back and just reflect on how enormous this experience has been. And as an investor, particularly in private markets, my own background is infrastructure, I really make the point that um, we've had this global social experiment. We've all experienced as a, as a, as a, as a global society the, the one experience in various forms over the course of the last few years. And I think the implications of that are very dramatic and yet to be determined. I think we have repriced time. Talking to a guy who used to be a plane on all the time, right? Okay. We've repriced time. Um, I think we're seeing that in the labor market. Our utility of space has changed at home, at the office. And so I think that as we think about, and then of course we've seen stresses and strains in global supply chains at Al um, that you know, have us rethinking uh, our supply chain models. What I see you so here is just one dimension of it, which is, is less understood. But on the left, you have the scale of the economic loss. Uh, in orange, you have the global financial crisis. It was substantially larger in economic terms, in terms of cost, than the pandemic. And that, why is that? Because effectively, we ended up on a lower growth trajectory post-GFC than we did, where with pandemic, it was more like a natural disaster, where there was a deep V, but kind of came back to sort of the growth potential that was before. But interestingly enough, the macroeconomic response by policymakers was four times the scale of the global financial crisis. We were awash with money. And that money was great for demand. It wasn't so great for sustaining our supply chains. And what we had on the back of the restart, particularly last year, was a supply shock. And that is very challenging. Because on the back of that supply check, inflation is back. And we really have to uh, look at the audience. There are quite a few people in this audience, in fairness, that remember high inflation. It's not normally the audiences I look at. <laughs> but, um, but we got inflation back. And so if you look at core there, which is the red line, you know, we're at levels not seen since the 80s. And, and that's real because suddenly, you know, central bankers who have taken Interest rates, again, those of us who are old enough will recollect interest rates in the mid-teens, in the early 80s. Like, these, these are hard, like you can't even begin to think about that level of, of interest rate today. And, and then, of course, began to deploy balance sheets um, prodigiously post-global financial crisis. But suddenly, central bankers have to respond. And they've been schizophrenic, right? Last summer, last autumn, it was transitory, right? The textbooks tell you supply-driven inflation, central bankers can do very little about um, because monetary policy tightening of it will, 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 dam or so will, will reduce demand. 
Um, but this is all supply driven. And so the hope was on the back of the restart, companies' investment would sort of ease it all out. Um, but it hasn't happened. And so central bankers, even before I get to a couple of other things like Ukraine, were very, very concerned as they got to the back end of the year that inflation expectation would shift. And that's what they feared. In other words, that we get people in particular looking for wage increases in anticipation of inflation, not just correcting for inflation that's been had in the past. And that gets you into a, a doom loop that ultimately requires massive uh, demand restructuring uh, and effectively recession to bring it back under control. And so they're all bringing out their inner vocaler. Uh, they're dusting it down and the, they're, in particular, the narrative is very aggressive. And in a sense, you know, you now have, if you take BlackRock as an example, I've got one group of colleagues that believe they're serious, that they've grown up in Ganta invest, uh, Central Bank School, and Central Bank School, the big bogey is inflation, and now they get a chance to crush it, and so they won't blink. The other group believe they'll blink. They believe that come the end of the summer into the autumn, the central bankers, when they see the impact on demand, when they see the impact on economic growth and unemployment, they'll blink. That's really hard to call, but it does mean the focus is going to be on the data that the central bankers will be looking at in order to determine where monetary policy goes. And I will tell you, this is what's going to dominate the markets until we see where actually monetary policy is, and it's probably before the end of the year we really have clarity, and whether on the back of that we have some form of recession. And the central banker trade-off will be take a, a smaller recession now than a much larger one in the future. Into this fragile context, a couple of things happen. The first is Ukraine. I cannot overstate on top of the massive humanitarian tragedy this is, the scale of the impact of what's going on in Ukraine. Uh, Tom Donlan, chairman of Investment Institute, National Security Advisor for Obama, he talks about the kinetic activity. It's a very benign description of this, uh, the conflict. But the transmission dynamics from Ukraine into the global system are enormous. And in particular, you're seeing it in commodities, whether that's energy, whether that's food or other commodities, particularly commodities that we need for energy transition. And that's put a supply shock on a supply shock, which has made the central bankers challenge even more. And if you're in Europe, where Ukraine is existential to, in a sense, uh, our, our kind of political uh, existence, for want of a better description, you know, we are taking enormous costs on the back of what we need to do in particular around energy. And the challenge with Ukraine, one, the cohesion of the Western response is remarkable. And certainly, I wouldn't have predicted this even two weeks before, uh, led by the United States and, and the Biden administration, but the EU more cohesive than it's been in years around responding. And note also corporates, back to, I know we'll pick up on sustainability later today, but Corporations in the Western world basically making strategic decisions at enormous cost to their shareholders over and above sanctions. And I think that's instructive as we think about the new world we're going into. 
But the reality is this has made the broader macroeconomic challenge substantially worse. And there is no short-term fix uh, to this issue. The second thing that has come along is China. So China, this growth engine that got, helped get us through the global financial crisis, is, is stuttering. Now, it potentially faced challenges in any case, but China is implementing a policy, zero COVID, which was right for the first phase of COVID, is wrong for the second phase. It's implementing it because of political rationale that President Xi is making tied to his re-election as president at Congress in October, November, when the data set. Now, this is the wrong strategy. We're playing out the right strategy, which is vaccinate and let the virus run. And hopefully vaccinate globally in a way that prevents mutations that ultimately invalidate the immunity we've built up in the population. Um, the Chinese vaccines are two problems. One is Chinese vaccine is not good. Now, a third shot, a booster, is actually not too bad. But for political reasons, no use of Western-produced mRNA vaccines. And the second is they haven't insisted on the over-65 vaccinated. So they face a massive cost in life if they let the vaccine run, in, or if they let the virus run in the short term. But this is having massive implications for growth. What you're seeing here on the left is effectively, and again, you know, just look at the trend, but you're seeing much more dramatic impact as we go into quarter two this year in both results and expectations with PMI data there. Um, this, is, this, is, this is important because just at the point in time, you know, we need all economies firing on all cylinders, we're getting weakness in a critical one. And that policy is unlikely to change until um, uh, she is reelected. He's facing challenges for the first time, apparently, you know, king-elect for life. Um, he will get reelected. I haven't seen any, what I would call, sophisticated uh, observer suggest he won't get reelected. But he does face challenge for the first time, and it'll all be about the standing committee, the seven members, uh, and whether there is a faction on that that is not she. But certainly, they will not highly unlikely to adjust the strategy in the short term. And the monetary and fiscal dynamics they'll deploy in, in, in the near term won't be sufficient to stop there being a real growth drag um, from China. So, by the way, I have no good news today. All right, okay, okay. <laughs> like, I'm really normally, just so you know, Maria, I'm a really happy, clappy guy, right? Okay, I mean, positive, love to get well excited. Like to build things, businesses, things like that. But it's a really challenging time to be optimistic. So you might think, why do you have to say climate change is real? We know it's real. Yeah, well, funny parts of the world I go to, you need to emphasize this. And the Ukraine plays in, Ukraine's playing into everything. Ukraine is going to ensure in Europe we decarbonize faster. Energy security is a much greater motivator for policy change in the short term than climate is. We'll burn more coal in the short term. By 2030, we'll be more decarbonized here in Europe than we would have been um, if, we were, uh, if we hadn't had Ukraine. In the US, I believe it'll be bad. I believe the energy security agenda in the United States will uh, slow down the transition. Uh, climate has been weaponized in what's already a very divided political system. 
And uh, in that context, um, I think that it'll be used to drive more oil and gas um, in the short to medium term. But here's the rub. The climate is changing and the cost is rising, measured in life and dollars. And this is on the right-hand side of that chart is the number of, you know, is the scale of billion dollar events. Hurricane Ida last year, uh, estimate 75 to $95 billion came ashore in Louisiana, 115 people killed. Um, interesting enough, 70% plus of that damage was not the immediate impact of the storm. It was the fact that it took down the electricity transmission system in Louisiana, parts of Texas, and Alabama, and took and shut down the heart of the US petrochemical industry for about two to three weeks. And that's what's going to change the policy. Is, and it's what actually has made the difference, in my view, with 25 years investing in renewables in the last four or five years. The cost has come home. It's no longer islands in the Pacific. Uh, it's no longer the Great Barrier Reef. It's here in developed markets and people understand, and it's going to drive change. And we're looking at a change that is you know, effectively scale of the industrial revolution in the core of the time. We've never attempted something like this, but we have to. And in the meantime, the cost is going to continue to rise. What most people miss is that we're going to be dealing with a temperature change of one and a half degrees plus. So I wouldn't be buying anything at sea level on a personal or institutional basis. Short answer. Um, but, you know, th this kind of structural change, deglobalization, are coming into this macroeconomic environment of which we operate as fund managers uh, and bringing more volatility. And my final bit of good news is we're dealing with a massive um, food crisis. Uh, and it's not price, it's security of supply. 12% of the world's traded calories come out of Russia and Ukraine. Russia is using the blockade of Odessa, which is 98% of Ukraine's uh, exports, is, is using it as a weapon in the mix. There isn't universal support for the West's sanctions in response to the Russian invasion. Big countries like India, emerging nations in Africa, Middle East, are very unhappy, and this is part of the reason. On the left, you see the UN Food and Agriculture Organization sort of uh, composite price index. The last peak was 2011, which was... Um, the Arab Spring. High food prices and the security supply of food prices brings down government. We have a huge amount of frailty in the emerging markets, North Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa, Middle East, parts of Latin America, and, uh, and, and Southeast Asia. Um, we in the developed world, 10% of our household budget goes on food. It's 25% of household budgets in emerging markets or developing countries. It's 40% of the household budget in sub-Saharan Africa. This is massive in its implications. And it cuts across a whole raft. What I don't have up there is actually sunflower oil. About 50% comes out of um, uh, Ukraine. And this is something that is like a snowball rolling down. It's begun. It's not stopping. It's a question of how big the avalanche is going to be at the end. And it's going to play out over the next 6, 12, 18, 24 months. And, and that's why you're going to get a huge amount of focus on trying to open Odessa up and getting food out. So this is the context of the capital we manage. So that great moderation, in my view, is over. There's a reversal of the great moderation. We are going to see a lot more volatility. We're seeing it in the markets at the moment. 
At the heart of it is ultimately how central bankers manage the inflation dynamic. And by the way, as we move forward, deglobalization and decarbonization are both inflationary. So I think that we're facing a more inflationary world and a more volatile world. If I go back to the framework, technology is the only thing that will continue to be positive in the overall mix. But China, on a relative basis, has turned negative. Deglobalization, we, you know, this data says we hit peak globalization 2013, 2014. Demographics, we can see that's changing in developed economies quite materially, but greater populism and nationalism is slowing down the movement of people, which would help mitigate that. And finally, geopolitically, we're no longer a unipolar world. That conflict, inverted commas, between the US and China will dominate the next few decades as we try as a global society to deal with some big existential dynamics like climate. Um, but then also, we're dealing with um, populist dynamics at home uh, in democracies in the Western world, which are massive in implications, of which the United States is the greatest potential source of instability. I would just have you think what the response to Ukraine might have been if Donald Trump was still in office. And what happens if in two and a half years' time, it's a Republican in the White House and not a Democrat. So these are contexts for our capital, for our clients. And I think that volatility will bring stress with it. And I think as those of us who manage money, those of us who provide services to the management of money, we have to factor this into our thinking as we move forward. But the good news, bit finishing a bit of high, BlackRock is very much um, committed to Ireland. Um, it is our largest fund domicile in Europe. I think it's over 500. I don't have my glasses on now, so it's from memory. I think it's over 500 funds we have. Um, and AUM growth is going by 40%. Uh, our employees over 130. That's up from 80-ish pre-pandemic. So huge growth and over 300 in the broader ecosystem supporting uh, our funds and our clients' capital here. And why? Because effectively the ecosystem and the track record of delivery. And that's understood in London, in New York, where these decisions get made. Future opportunities? Well, into that turbulence and volatility is a requirement for new funds, grow to private markets, grow to sustainability, which the panel will come back and talk about. And, you know, and I think that's where the challenge is for policymakers and regulators and system providers to you know, think ahead. Crypto was on the panel here before. There's all sorts of new dynamics. I think if Ireland wants to continue to win, it needs to be ahead in its thinking uh, to enable players like BlackRock deliver the funds and the strategies that will deliver for our clients in this context. So that's a positive note to finish on. Exactly. Anyway, um, I hope uh, you've enjoyed that presentation. Thank you very much for your time and enjoy the rest of the day. Thank you.